this should give us an opportunity to talk, to talk about Java, which, which is always nice. I worked at Amazon for two years and that's all we did was Java there. And uh, right. I, I never want to do it again. Yeah, yeah Java Radio. This was great. <laughs> Java Radio, yeah. All right, <laughs> I, so I'll reserve that, uh, that domain name. That's a, yeah. All right, hello and welcome to this week's episode of Beam Radio. Your fabulous panel of hosts is here to chat with you as always. And this week we have with us Lars Vickman. Hello. Welcome, Lars. And we have Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. Hey, Alex. We've got Bruce Tate. Hi, everybody. Hi, Bruce. And I'm Sophie DiBenedetto. And before we jump in to hear a little bit more from this week's cast member host, I am going to save some space for a word from our wonderful sponsor, Graxio, which you may know at this point is career fuel for programmers. So, Bruce, do you want to give us a little update on what's new in Graxio? Yeah, I've been plowing through nerves. Right now, we are working with sensors, and we're building like a sensor hub, which with public subscribe, oh my, it is just absolutely gorgeous. This last uh, nerve segment is going to do a sensor hub with light sensors and uh, air quality sensors. Very cool. Thanks for sharing. And I can't remember if we talked about this last time, but for any of our listeners, I feel like Bruce's house has become sort of nerves maker central. And you can see behind him on the Zoom call, his new nerves powered, uh, is it a binary clock with like cool lights lighting up on a bookshelf that you also just made yourself to sort of complete the theme of DIY. Uh, so there's a lot of cool stuff that I know you've been learning with nerves. And I definitely recommend that people check it out on Graxio. So speaking of Bruce, Bruce is our host for today, and I would love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. So Sophie, that's a loaded question. Do you want the long version or the short version? Definitely long version. Let's hear all about it. <laughs> okay. So, um, you know, I'm a little bit older as a developer, so I've been around a while. Um, I, I got my undergrad degree at Mississippi State. I interned at IBM in Austin, Texas. And so I actually worked for IBM for 13 years. Then I joined a, I kind of maxed out the technical career path. You know, I said, I can't, I can't just kind of stay at this level for 30 years. So what's next? And so I joined a startup and it took the startup about two months to completely implode. You know, the year was uh, 1999. And, and so we went, we burst with the rest of the technical bubble. And so I tried to go back to IBM, but I wound up writing a book. It was a horrible book with a great title called Bitter Java. So there was a, there was a time when um, you couldn't get Amazon books online yet. When something was announced for sale, it started selling. And this book got slash dotted, right? So it hit this form and um, was really the most popular uh, source for developers. When a book hit slash dot, it was either going to make or break it, right? Well, people started talking about what Bitter Java was about. And they said, oh, this is about sticking it to the man. Somebody's finally standing up to Java. And that's not what the book was about at all. It was an anti-pattern book really a terrible book. So when Slashdot started talking about it in these terms, it started climbing on, on Amazon. And so um, over time, this thing bumped from in the millions to the hundreds of thousands to the tens of thousands, which was big time at the time. And then so the family started huddling around this thing and pressing reload repeatedly. And then so eventually it reached number seven on Amazon, not of technical titles, but of all titles, right? Between 
Grisham and Hawkins, right? And so, you know, I have, I still have that, that screenshot of that. As soon as people started buy, buying the book, of course, it fell off the charts. It was really terrible. But I started to make some relationships that got me on a, um, on a speaker circuit with people that I respect, like James Duncan Davidson, um, who was author of, um, of the Ant Project, which is kind of um, one of the forerunners of some of these build tools, you know, much like Elixir's Mix. And um, Dave Thomas was on the tour and um, Stuart Holloway of Closure Fame was on it. Just really a, a tremendous group of, of speakers and, and developers and people. And so I had a lot of mentors around me to establish me in consulting. And so I did that for a while. And then um, I, I was coding Java at the time. And there was, a, there was a time in there where I wrote this book called Better, Faster, Lighter Java, which is lightweight Java. And was really proud of that, was talking about it, um, and was introducing that to, to some customers who thought Java was too complicated. And then there was an epiphany moment when there was a customer in Wisconsin, and I'm not going to mention who it was, so that I don't throw either one of us under the bus, right? But um, they asked me the question, okay, so if I want to take a couple of classes from you, actually, let's start with books. Tell me a couple of books that I can assign to my staff and have them read and th so that they would get this job, right? So I said, well, you know, first you need to understand this, um, you know, the web stuff, but that's not really Java. So there's this servlet thing, and then you wrap that with this spring thing, and that's a dependency. Okay, dependency injection, you can get, you can understand that pattern here. And then there's this hibernate thing. This, so I had this stack of books that was about two feet tall, and I said, you have to learn this to have any prayer of being successful. And I thought, wait a minute, this is scary. And about that time, I had a conversation with Dave Thomas on a train coming back from one of these no fluff, just stuff shows, which is was a, the Java conference I mentioned earlier. And Dave said, you know, you should try doing the same thing in Ruby. And then I started getting pretty aggressive with him. And Dave being the consummate British gentleman that he is said, Bruce, shut up and come back when you've done something non-trivial with Ruby. And so I did. In fact, I, um, I approached a project with, with my friend, Justin Getland, who's also one of the founders of Cognitect of Closure fame. And we knocked out a project in, um, gosh, two weeks or something that had been spec for several months. Um, since it was all cached, it was, I mean, it did what every other application of the day did it is a, a big fat relational database that you babysat with a with a CRUD application and, and um, Ruby on Rails did it really well, especially if you cached. And um, so that kind of started me down a different path of actually caring about programming languages. And then over time, um, I started writing about Ruby and then I started writing about the idea that maybe the reign of programming languages that were all object oriented would come to an end someday. So I wrote a couple of books called Beyond Java and one was called Seven Languages in Seven Weeks. When I wrote seven languages in seven weeks, I was actually looking for something to replace a Ruby installation that I was making for a company called I Can Make It Better. One of the things that came out of that is you know, I was watching a couple of functional languages. I didn't find exactly the one I, I was looking for, but I did make a connection with, with Joe Armstrong. And for, for that book, 
we had um, the creators of five of those languages and multiple creators for some of the languages actually write small opinions for that book. So it opened an enormous number of doors for me. And it's actually how I met one of my mentors, Joe Armstrong. And I don't mean to say that um, we talked every day, but he wrote the foreword for the book. He actually uh, taught me a little bit of prologue. And there's a number of keynotes that I, I gave that talked about the experience shortly after Joe died. So I'm not going to bore you with those details. But suffice to say, that opened the door for me. Jose found that book. And that was one of the inspirations for the Elixir programming language. So right now I write um, Elixir books. I had an independent consultancy for a while to build Elixir products, um, but now I'm I'm teaching people to write Elixir. I kind of think I have a, a pretty decent technical legacy. What I'd like to do is set my social legacy now. Um, one of my main passions is um, opening up programming beyond what's typical, beyond people who all look the same in terms of gender and, and ethnicity. And all look the same in terms of graduates of four-year colleges that all learned this one set of languages. Um, I want to open that up a little bit and, and include a little bit of diversity. So, and then that's that's what Groxio is about. It's about um, accumulating a subscriber base by saying interesting things that drive the passion for programming languages, but also to help fund some of the efforts that I have around this programming diversity. So I'm sure that you folks have some questions for me. So many questions. I'm going to jump in first just because there's a couple that came to mind. As someone that, you know, I really enjoy technical writing. Um, our listeners probably know that you and I are collaborating on the upcoming programming live you book. So I'm curious, you know, you mentioned um, in one of your sort of job change moments, you had thought, oh, maybe I'll go back to IBM, but I ended up writing a book instead. Like, how did that happen? What got you started writing and why did you keep up with it? Yeah, so that's a that's a really interesting and embarrassing question at the same time, right? So um, I thought that I was a big shot author, but what had really happened was that there were these people at IBM that are, you know, this this is a company of hardcore nerds, or at least was at the time. I mean, now IBM means something different, but back then there there might have been a stack of 200 resumes and IBM took the three or four top ones off and said, industry fight over the rest. It's not that now, but, um, but there were hardcore nerds there. And many of them would buy every internal publication that they could get their hands on, right? So a ninja move that I was taught very early at IBM was the idea that if you made a publication as part of your job description and sold it um, over this, this IBM infrastructure called IBM Mechanicsburg at the time, you could make a name for yourself if you made a third-party book and you got that distributed on Mechanicsburg. You could make a name for yourself and you could actually accumulate some sales. So Get these titles, Sophie. I wrote a book called Comprehensive Database Performance for OS2's Extended Services. And wow, sounds like a super fun read. <laughs> we will definitely have to put a link to that in the show notes. You need you can you can mock me relentlessly for that one, but don't mention the other one, please. Objects for OS2. A better brand, but man. Somewhat better brand, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as as good as a, a book can be, a book brand can be with the word OS2 in the title. Yeah. It's like really concise. I've learned kind of the shape of the branding. But anyway, so once I did this, I said, man, I'm selling tons of books. Everybody loves me, right? Well, the truth all, was- All the people whose job it is to buy your book. Really <laughs> right, right, right. So um, there's a, there was this button on IBM Mechanicsburg um, that um, people could click that said, basically, buy me everything that as it comes out. And I mean, it was just just such a such a waste. So so I thought that um, if I joined a startup and things went south, I could always write. So I did the best thing that you could do, which is write a terrible book with a great market, right first. And and that gave me the humility to know that I needed to improve, but that gave me a platform to enable me to kind of write some of those wrongs, you know, as, as my career grew. So, you know, I, I've been paid back by karma. There's, there's been a couple of books that were actually excellent books, but, um, but sold rather poorly. Sounds like you maybe got into writing because it was a strategic move, but you've kept up with it for decades. So yeah, what, what continues to keep you coming back? So I think that there's this idea in, as in, in consultancies and in business that you need to put out a product. The product doesn't sell. You just need to adjust the price. I think that that's almost always a mistake. So what I typically do is I have a basic rate that I think is fair um, you know, for courses, a, a course rate that I think is fair. And when I don't have enough business, I will write a book to kind of juice the market a little bit. You know, nobody's going to make money um, writing technical books these days. I mean, you know very well that you could probably make more money flipping burgers. I don't know. That's probably a bad idea talking my co-author out of this business, right? But um, mm, I quit. But, <laughs> But writing can effectively open a lot of doors for you, and they certainly did for me. So I write as a matter of process to, to kind of improve the Bruce Tate and Groxio brands, um, and it's been very good in that role. So uh, not for any personal interest or whatever, but what advice do you have for people who want to write uh, books specifically? Yeah, so that's, that's a hard question, right? Because um, I think that books play an outsized role in the success of the software ecosystem. We can actually watch in Elixir um, the technologies that are adopted and the publishing schedule around those. And um, many times the books helped drive the success of the project. So the first thing that, that I would say is that when you write, Good things can happen to an ecosystem. And I'm, I'm definitely in it because I'm, I'm good at that. I'm not really good at writing open source so uh, software because that takes a lot of attention to detail. But with the writing process, I can work with people that have that attention to detail and I can use my higher level skills, which are mainly organization and things like that. So the idea is that when you write for first for the world and second for yourself, it's, it is a better experience. It's a more rewarding experience. And second, when you are, com are complacent in, in a career, writing a book can help shake you out of that because it will stretch you. 
So you've written a couple of uh, a couple of books now, right? Um, what were some of your kind of more memorable books that you wrote, and some that you know some of the books that had the biggest impact on you? And uh, you know, maybe dive into that a little bit. Yeah. So that's actually two questions. It's um, what are the books that have had a big impact on me? And that kind of is an answer and a question too, right? So the books that have an impact on me really are co-authors that have had an impact on me. Um, the first one would have to be Seven Languages in Seven Weeks. Stuart Holloway, um, John Hughes, um, all, all of the authors of languages in, in Seven Languages in Seven Weeks. I don't know them well. I didn't. Um, they didn't write the books with me, but um, but the doors that they opened for me and the relationships that I started to establish at that time have stayed with me forever. And that book was also really rewarding for another reason. Mostly, I did not expect that book to succeed. I wrote it to bring people along with me um, on a journey that um, that maybe this object-oriented thing has gone as far as we can take it. And other people might be embarking on this same journey. So, um, so this book by a novice at all of these languages except one um, might be interesting. And the process that I use to explore them might be interesting to other people. So that was rewarding. So the, the second one is um, one of my favorite people on the planet is James Gray. And James Gray is, um, you know, just is this beautiful, kind man who is a little bit disabled, but who has overcome so much by becoming more effective at his personal relationships and at his automations. And he is just so intelligent and, and so much fun to be around that, that the designing Elixir systems with OTP was just, um, gosh, I mean, it was like um, there's, there's this huge you know, pressure of ideas coming out from James Gray. And I, I volunteered. I said, you, you build me kind of the, the scaffolding with, with some of those ideas. He, he didn't write mostly beyond, um, beyond a bulleted list. And he built some of the programming examples. And then I, I wrote the book from there. And, and so the flow was actually a beautiful flow, made a tremendous impact on me personally, just because I got to see the other aspects of James. James is a person, James is a father. James is an open source um, collaborator. Um, James is a scholar. Um, James is a professional. And all of those things um, shaped the way I behave in my career tremendously. You're probably going to laugh at, at the last one. Maybe you think I'm sucking up a little bit, but I have really enjoyed this book that I'm writing with Sophie. Um, and, and the reason is that Sophie, as someone who has come out of a boot camp, has very much a similar background to mine. I mean, I, I don't have a strong academic background. Most of my degree is based on the math side of computer science. And so that allowed me to shape my ideas on my own. And I find that, um, that Sophie has very much learned to, um, to think in that way and communicate in that way. And the other thing that happens is that the more experience that you gather, the further that you get away from readers who don't have much experience, right? So, and, and Sophie is able to kind of take these ideas that she understands well and understand the pain that she went through to get that understanding and really distill things that I thought were previously clear. You know, some of the way that you 
live as a programmer, the way that you shape your ideas is um, just kind of beautiful to watch. And, um, and also it's, it's much more fun to work with people that keep their commitments and you do so. And, you know, so that's been great. So that's, that's three, that's three, but you know, every book is like a, it's like a kid. You can't, you can't really pick favorites. You could just pick highlights along the way. Well, thank you for saying that, Bruce. That's, you know, those feelings are very much returned, been learning so much from working with you. And I will say too, that, you know, this ability that you attribute to me to sort of break things down for people that are earlier in their programming journey definitely very much comes from my time uh, as a teacher at the Flatiron School as well. And as a, as a, uh, I was teaching and writing curriculum there and you know, you've got a room full of 30 people who are stressed out, they're trying to change their career, they've quit their jobs to be here, you know, the littlest hole in the narrative of what you're trying to teach to them will create so many problems because it's just compounded by, you know, very real anxiety of going through that process for people. So you really uh, kind of get this idea beaten into you that it needs to be like, as clear as possible, you know, if you have to repeat yourself, repeat yourself, like not spoon feed people by any stretch, but um, make sure to really give folks the tools that they need to kind of build their own pathway forward. And I'm going to say something else too. Um, it, you know, it's become clear to many of us related to the Braggs that, that Sophie is just a really good author. I think that I know one of the reasons, and, and once again, you're going to laugh, um, good authors have to have the ability to lie the first time and then come back and clean it up, right? You have to know when to... Yeah. When to generalize, right? Um, so I say generalize, but what happens is that you you present with the first pass, you present an incomplete um, understanding, but you can distill it into a clean metaphor. And then you say, okay, that's true, but these are the details I didn't give you, right? But the yeah. thing that makes good authors good at that is that they say, hey, I'm going to tell you this truth. It's an incomplete truth, but bear with me a little bit. We'll we'll come back and catch up later. And, and Sophie's really good at that. I think that's so true that you need to be comfortable presenting these incomplete truths. And it's funny because teaching and writing is the only area of my life in which I'm able to withhold an, any amount of truth. Otherwise, I like, don't tell me any secrets, you guys. I absolutely cannot keep a secret. Teaching and writing are exempt from that, though. So true. The purple carpet. Don't bring your secrets <laughs> yeah. to Sophie. No, They're exactly. Out. They're getting out. Yeah. Not only is it already being broadcast, but I'll probably tell at least three people. Actually, a friend of mine told me, not a secret, this was at my previous job, it was a friend of mine at work, told me, you know, he that he was going to accept a job offer elsewhere. And I thought, oh my God, I'm being told a secret. What am I going to do? I can't keep the secret. So of course I cracked and I told one other person who then promptly told me that they already knew. So people know that I can't keep a secret and treat me accordingly. So Alex, you also have had quite a bit of experience with, with Java at Amazon, right? That is true. That is true. I did, uh, I did Java for about, uh, I think it was just under two years at Amazon. And, and you uh, loved it. I, every, every minute of it, every minute of it, because it taught me that I should never touch Java ever again. So that was, that was two years well spent uh, figuring out that the language and the ecosystem just wasn't for me. And uh, I had a very similar experience to the one you, uh, you outlined there, Bruce, where it was like, all right, I need to write a Java app. Okay, I got to figure out this dependency injection uh, nonsense. And then I need to figure out this like awkward DSL in these XML files. 
that allows me to do that dependency injection nonsense. It, it, like it was just thing after thing after thing after thing that I had to learn in order to get me to a point where I could actually be productive and, and do the thing I actually set out to do. And uh, I mean, one of the first times I ever programmed was on my TI-83 calculator. And I love that experience of, I could type on the calculator of my program and then it could immediately do the thing that I, I set out to do, which was to you know, get me to get an A on that exam in record time. But uh, when I was doing something in Java, it was hours and hours of what I found to be boilerplate and non-productive work. Yeah, it just, it, it really, it really dissuaded me. So I don't know, maybe the Java ecosystem has changed since then, but uh, yeah, this was, this was about 10 years ago and I uh, haven't gone back since. Yeah, so I think that one of the things that's in play here, and um, I mean, first, let me say that building a language is hard building a language that in context, the decisions that you make have tremendous impact on things that you're not even thinking about at the time, right? So um, you know, all those caveats, I mean, I have tremendous respect for um, a lot of people in the ecosystem, for Philip Wadler and his work in generics and typing, for um, the current owner of the Java product, um, who is Brian Getz, who was with us on the No Fluff Just Stuff tour and on and on and on. But I do believe that if you want to get a sense of the things um, in a language that aren't quite where they need to be, you look at the frameworks that you can't really put your finger on what they do, right? So a good example is the enterprise Java Bean specification, right? Um, I mean, Enterprise Java Bean was this specification that, that was basically driven by a couple of a couple of companies. Um, IBM had this thing called Entity Beans. Oracle had these things called Session Beans, and those things were abstractions that kind of led to more and more and more abstractions, so that there became a name for an object. It was called a POJO, a plain ordinary Java object. A POJO. You had a four-letter acronym for a thing that was just the object that was supposed to be the basic thing that the language was created to, to create in the first place, right? The main okay. abstract in the language had a four letter acronym, POJO. And then if I recall correctly, there was another library that became really popular where it was like writing POJOs was too much boilerplate. And so it would, like through annotations, it would automatically generate your POJO for you. And it was right. stuff like that where I was like, this is like, there's gotta be a better way. Right. So, so there was this aspect J thing, which was, um, you know, you can kind of tell that you're at the end of the effective life of a language of a pair of programming paradigm. When you start to see other major abstractions bolted on. Right. And so um, the thing that you're talking about started as something called aspect J, which was called aspect oriented programming. Um, or dynamic typing in other languages, right? <laughs> uh, you know, functional programming, you know, there's a lot of other um, versions of it that, that do it better. But Aspect J, um, some of the ideas were actually absorbed into something called Spring, which turned the abstractions on their heads, right? So that's, that's when you got dependency injection. The thing was, um, with, with Java, it didn't quite have the right abstractions to do typing for callbacks, right? And so, you know, you think about it, um, there's not a lot of callback programming in Elixir, 
but the places that we use callbacks are some of the most important abstractions in language, right? Um, like OTP, you know, I'm editing your stuff right now that's around uh, Phoenix presence and, and live view. So these are all behaviors that define, that specialize how callbacks have to happen. And um, when you need to do this in a fairly generic way, Java got, Java ran into trouble pretty early. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I had very much the same problems as, as you did. And there's another problem that goes with that. You know, some people treat language as religion. And I'm not saying that all Java developers do, but when, when any community approaches a certain amount of critical mass, there are some people that will treat this language as a movement and will attach their identities to it. So there's a point when I was going to a conference um, and the conference was in, I think, Barcelona, Spain. I had just written this Beyond Java book. And the idea was that we need to start looking at other abstractions because Java's not going to last forever, y'all. So there's a reporter that asked me some questions and I had some, oh, some beautiful responses. One, one was, um, he said, well, so beyond Java, you believe Java is dead, right? Asking this gotcha question. And I said, no, 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 nothing could be further from the truth. And I talked about COBOLs lived on forever. And then, so I kind of wrapped it all up with this pithy quote. It says, what I mean is Java is dead like COBOL, not like Elvis, right? Later on the server side, which was the preeminent um, site for discussing Java applications at the time, posted this, this giant headline in, in blinking letters saying, Bruce Tate says Java dead like COBOL, right? And that accelerated the exit of the Java community for me. So at that point, you were exiled from EJBs and everything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, shortly after that, so that that was right after um, Justin and I had worked on the project together. He wrote most of the code. Um, I did a lot of the promotion work, you know, selling the client and kind of establishing that. And um, it was really eye-opening. At that point, I knew that I had to make a, um, make a living doing something other than Java. And we had tried this Ruby on Rails thing. And I knew that there was a company in town. I had some, an inside look at their proposals process and they were um, looking for an offshore solution for building a highly complicated job application. Well, while this application was highly complicated in Java, it was really easy to do in Ruby on Rails. I mean, it was just a couple of steps beyond the scaffolding, right? So I approached the company it was like um, in, in a small town that's um, you know, 40 minutes south of Austin. And I said, hey, I will take your best price, knowing that they were pitching this offshore. I will cut it in half. And sight unseen, I don't need to see your best price. They said, okay, here's the price. And then expecting me to turn, turn away running, right? And we beat that price by a third. After that, I stopped selling languages and I started selling price and features and started selling the idea that it's less expensive building a fresh new Ruby developer than it is to build an existing Java de developer with the exact mix of skills that you need. I still believe that's true. 
I'm curious where you think now that like uh, Phoenix and LiveView and building a fresh new Elixir developer fits into that story. Okay, so um, that's a that's a really complicated question that gets into what is web development today, right? I believe that if that 80% of the stuff that we're building today is still babysitting a big fat relational database with an application that might have some tiny integrations, right? If you don't have specific requirements that break out away from LiveView, um, then, then you're crazy not to do something like LiveView, right? I am not saying that LiveView works in all programming languages. And in fact, I, I believe the opposite is true. I believe that the reason LiveView works in Elixir and Phoenix is that we have 10 years of work making sure that the load on the system, that, that the response time for the system is uniform. And you have to have that with a web development framework in real time. Because if, if one out of every 200 responses falls out of like, um, you know, I don't know, um, one, one or two standard deviations of the main response time, before with the request response, you might have one in 50 users experiencing such a problem. Well, when you have an, a highly interactive system where you have like hundreds of responses per user, every single user is going to experience an application that just kind of blows up and hangs. And so, um, so the first part of that is that you have to build the right abstraction. The second part of that is that you have to build the abstraction in a framework that does enough on the performance, reliability, scalability, uniformity side to make all of this work. I believe that programming live view starts to make a big step in that direction. And that's, I can start putting all of the, um, everything in my head with one framework again, rather than building this distributed application that has a client that lives on the browser with JavaScript, a host, um, you know, the, the servers that live on the browser, all the routes between them, all the transport, all of the things that that JavaScript represents. If you can just take that out of the equation and if you could just say, my application is responsible for two things receiving events, that change state, and rendering that state. If you can build that, even though, even if there are small places that, that leak out of that abstraction, like, you know, components, I don't think we have exactly right yet, it's still a huge win, a huge win. And that's where we are right now, I think. Yeah, I think I think LiveView and the, the ecosystem that's beginning to form around LiveView, like Surface and, uh, and other projects, has really kind of raise the raise the ceiling in terms of majestic monoliths and how far you can go with just one language and one stack. And to get back to the point you brought up earlier, Bruce, the developer experience and the productivity gain is is unreal. Cause I could do I, I can do the front end, I can do the back end, I can have my my cron jobs, everything is in one platform, one runtime, one language. While this can't do everything, it can get you really, really far and even further than you could before. And you just can't match that that uh, that productivity gain. Yeah, and I think that there are just a couple of tiny things that are missing. And, and Lars kind of touched on it earlier. You know, this idea that that you can describe a whole stack and whole philosophy with one word. So Lars, if you could drop in your um, your pedal article on the show notes, that'd be great. Because one of the things that's missing is um, we need a way to describe this way of thinking. 
right? This way of saying one person can handle the job because we're doing a couple of things. First, we're, we're basing our operations on a, a scalable functional language. Second, we are building single purpose functions to update the state. Third, we're building single purpose functions to render on the server side state. When I do those things and I can wrap those around like an efficient uh, CSS framework so that I'm not coding all that stuff from scratch, when I have that trap door to get access to a tiny little bit of JavaScript when I need it in Alpine, you get great things. So yeah, Alex, I absolutely agree with, with where you're going and the way you're thinking about it. I don't see a lot of other languages and runtimes that they give you this, uh, this capability. And it kind of gets me back to my early days in Elixir where I was looking for a new language and I probably should have read your book back then, Bruce, but uh, I was looking for a new language where concurrency was like a core part of the language. And that was, that was my primary concern because I was working uh, at a company at the time and that, that always seemed to be the biggest problem was horizontally scaling and, uh, and dealing with all these concurrency problems. And I, I think it was, it was either PHP or Node or Python at the time. We had a mixture of, of services, but all of those didn't really give you a good concurrency story. And so I went out looking for a new language in a runtime. I read uh, a book on Go and a book on uh, Elixir. So it was Elixir in Action by Sasha Yurik and then Go in Action, and I can't remember the author. The, the level of concurrency that I saw in the Beam just blew my mind. And it still continues to blow my mind when I think of things like, uh, or when I use tools like LiveView, and those patterns that uh, you know blew my mind back then continue to blow my mind now. And I see how easy it is to build these applications, and how you know, let's say one user is doing something CPU bound, they're not impacting every other user's session on there. Everyone gets their equal time slice on the CPU, and if you just by chance are doing something heavy computation, you're not impacting everybody else using the system. And so I think that the runtime just really, really lends itself to, uh, to live view and what it's trying to accomplish. Yeah, so I think I, I absolutely agree. And, and um, with the runtime, I, I think that one of the things that, that is right about the whole Erlang ecosystem is this idea of OTP and supervision trees. I think that that's, that's simultaneously the best and the worst part of language. The best part, because it enables things like having concurrent stacks that are all in their own silo, that are all managed and all fail together or start up together in like a, a tree structure. And any new piece of the ecosystem can automatically play in this by just saying, I'm an application, here's how to start me, right? So that's, that's really powerful. I think the downside is that we have stayed with, with a 30-year-old terminology so that we have wor words like supervisor, where you have to be part of the club to get it, right? So that there are a, a, an enormous number of people that are afraid of OTP. Um, things like call and cast, what is that, right? Um, well, synchronous and asynchronous would be a little bit better. Rather than using supervisor, you should use the word lifecycle probably, lifecycle manager or something like that. When I talked to Jose about LiveView and why LiveView was so successful, I rambled for, I don't know, an insanely long amount of time. And at the end, Jose was just shaking his head. And I said, what's so funny? He says, Bruce, it's turtles all the way down. And that's it, right? It's that you have the same abstractions that go all the way down to the core. And then that's all you need. 
That's all you need. I think that is an excellent note to wrap up on. Turtles all the way down. I'm sure we'll grab that for our title. Thank you so much, Bruce, for hosting us today as we got to dig into a little bit of your history, your writings, and uh, you know what you see as some of the benefits that Elixir has brought to LiveView and, and one from the Beam and some of these design patterns that we see all the way down. And thank you to Lars and Alex. And we hope that everyone will join us again for our next episode of Beam Radio. Thanks, everybody.